Good morning. This is Josephine Royal of Let Me Tell You Something. It is another beautiful day in Malden, Massachusetts, rain and all. Grab a cup of coffee and have a seat, and I'm going to let you know what comes from the heart. will touch your heart today. I have a lovely lady here with me today, and her name is Patricia Kruger-Henny. And she is in the Department of Education in the University of Boston. Hi, Patricia. How are you doing today? Hello, Miss Josephine. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. I read a little bit about you. I know you have a lot going on and a little bit of music, too, I hear. So tell me a little bit about who was the person that got you into education. Well, I should say myself, because I am an only child, and I begged my parents for the first 11 years of my life, I want a sibling, please, please, please. And if it didn't happen, my parents said, nope, we're too old, we're not going to do another one. And so I figured out really quickly from early age, not just to, you know, to learn how to entertain myself and keep myself busy, but I was out on the streets, on the block, constantly looking for other kids, for company, to organize some things, to whether it's games, whether challenges such as scavenger hun hunts. But I was always part of a gang of kids and organizing, mobilizing activities. So I knew really clearly that I love to be around people. I love to, I always love to have some sort of a common mission, a shared mission. And I carried this over the years, fast forward into my adult life, that um, my mentor, right after finishing my master's degree, said, you need to go into teaching. And I've had other people throughout my life telling me, consider being a teacher. And I was like, yeah, nah, not teaching, not teaching. But I always loved organizing birthday parties. Again, street events, right? Activities for the kids in the neighborhood. So I listened to my mentor this time. And I ventured into high school teaching, sort of like uh, teacher, student teacher teaching kind of opportunities. And I loved it. I loved the collective thinking. I loved the collective making sense out of the world, right? And um, challenging the narratives that we inherited about ourselves and the histories of our people, of our community. So I started pushing back with students and I was hooked. I just knew that I had to be in education. So I pursued, after finishing my master's degree, I pursued again, thanks to my mentor, my PhD in education because I wanted to be in the knowledge making and knowledge distribution, just really reinstate truer and more relevant narratives about ourselves. You know, that's a gift. Mm. I think that's a gift. Um, sometimes we experience things in our lives, and I think sometimes as a child, like yourself, that comes as a gift. Tell me more about um, when you went to college. What college did you go to? I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Oregon, West Coast, right? And I double majored in Spanish and in French. I did not know what I was going to do with myself. So I figured I should focus on languages because I grew up in a bilingual, bicultural home. I'm Dominican and German. So I grew up with Spanish and German around me every single day. It just was maybe an easy choice, right? I didn't challenge myself. But at the same time, I had not read much about cultural writings about the Dominican Republic, for example. So in a way, 
my 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 bachelor degrees in Spanish, for example, brought me much closer to my Dominican roots, history, uh, my family, because I had a series of fantastic Spanish literature faculty who uh, incorporated Dominican scholars, writers, thinkers, right, and exposed me, I think, beyond American interpretations of Dominican texts. So it was really great. So you had a, like a range, with, probably with poets. and. Mm. So tell me a little bit, uh, were you born in this country? I was not born in the U.S. I was born in Germany. My mother, um, when she was pregnant with me and was close to giving birth to me, uh, my parents were traveling back and forth, Dominican Republic and Germany, and I just happened, I mean, birth time happened in, in, in Germany, right? So I have an accent in all the languages I speak because I was raised with different languages. And when we came, my mother and I, we moved to the U.S. in 1989. So you had English to the brain. Uh, the brain reveals itself in all the different ways it has been marked, right? Linguistically marked, yeah. Yeah, but you sound lovely. Thanks. <laughs> you do sound lovely. You see, uh, when I hear somebody speak, like in, in this manner, I hear music. Mm. I do hear music. I, that's the way I hear um, people speak that speak a different language. I hear it as music anyway. But uh, tell me more. Um, uh, you, you work with youths. Yeah, yeah. And tell me how you... Yeah, I mean, before before we, uh, we came to Boston, to the Boston area, my husband and I, we met and lived. I worked for many years in New York City. And it was there that I was introduced to the out-of-school slash after-school educational spaces. So I had the chance to be involved with a number of different nonprofit organizations in New York. And we directed um, social justice-centered after-school leadership programs for high school youth particularly. And so in those spaces, it was always about a couple of hours every day after school, where we discussed human rights issues, right, or human rights violations around the world. And these organizations really believed in connecting global issues or struggles that young people have outside of the United States with what was happening in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, in Queens, right? It's just to really draw the parallels between global structures of injustices and what was happening right in their backyard, in their own local community on their block, to really begin tracing power structures, inequalities, right? And then to move towards taking actions together. So these uh, leadership programs all materialized in real social action initiatives locally. What year was that? Mm -hmm. That was between 2001 and 2007. Awesome. Awesome. So how well did that work in New York, in the Bronx, and whatnot? I mean, it was extremely successful that, that young people really started understanding the need to think beyond themselves, start connecting with people and young people again around the world, around, uh, let's say, food insecurity, homelessness, unemployment, right? Um, police brutality, whether again on their block or elsewhere, right? Um, to really understand that what they're experiencing, if it's particular an injustice, a, a form of violence, right? A form of oppression or subordination, that this was not just happening to themselves so they couldn't blame themselves or their own community. We are guilty for behaving in a particular way so that these systems come down to us and punish us or profile us, right? 
Instead is when you flip the unit of analysis and you trace systems and mechanisms and these practices and ideologies that they foster, you start dismantling systems, weaken them, right? By standing up with real community-centered and community-led actions, right? Whether it is from petitioning, holding media conferences, showing up at the mayor's office, organizing, sure, like what most people are familiar with, demonstrations or walkouts, right? Um, but it is really sort of a, what I call an intentional pausing and resisting to not wanting to feed the system of injustices or violence. Mm, did you ever work with elderly not so much, not yet. My focus has been young people because young people are most frequently not included in adult talk. And when I say adult talk, these are adult-dominated conversations about young people's education, about young people's college um, accessibility, right? Young people's employment opportunities, right? So I really, my intention, my purpose was really creating space, sort of like inserting myself with young people in adult-dominated spaces. So uh, let me ask you, when you came to Boston, mm -hmm. and now you're working at the uh, University at of UMass Boston. Boston. Yeah, mm -hmm. UMass Boston. Exactly. Are you doing the same thing there? And what have you written? Uh, where can people find it? Tell us about that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I It is, in a way, the same kind of work, but I'm entering the spaces to insert young people or to make adult-dominated spaces inclusive of young people by way of um, knowledge production as an, as an academic now, right? Before in New York City, for example, and other parts of the world, you could find me more on the streets and community spaces. Now I have a job, what many people conceive of as the ivory tower of academia, right? Although with UMass Boston, it's as you know, Boston's only public university. I don't know so how much of an ivory tower it is, but we do have a lot of privilege in terms of deciding what counts as knowledge, right? Whose writings do we perpetuate and legitimize, right? What do people need to know about schooling for me in case, right? In my case, I'm in education. So what do teachers, administrators need to know about what's happening with, let's say, Boston public schools? Where is it neglecting um, and falling short in taking care of the young people and their families? So I think I have an extremely powerful position right now in dismantling often one-sided narratives, the one-sidedness of who are our heroes and who are our victims, right? I flip it a lot and I insert there young people talking about their educational experiences and I make it official language or, or official knowledge, I should say. So mm -hmm. I have a lot of my students are teachers and administrators, after-school practitioners, and I, I, I reposition young people and the wisdom that they hold about their own personal lives and their lived experiences as the experts in education. And it, that just changes everything. Instead of looking always at the policymakers, right? It's, instead of always looking at school principals to be the holder of truths, right? What about if you start listening to young people? Mm. It's a whole different conversation. Oh, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I think it? so. I it, think so. It's a double-edged sword. Tell me more. Tell me more. What What are you doing in the studies, in the doctrine area of his studies? Because that has to change there, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are trained, and this includes my own academic training, that as researchers in the making, 
you run the entire research show. You get to ask the questions. You get to create your own research designs. You can just roll into communities and you can expect people are eagerly and willingly ready to answer your questions and participate in your study. Well, you see in Boston, it's uh, Boston air is saturated with universities and colleges. I mean, I can only imagine, I cannot, how many researchers every year are going into Boston's communities with these questions that they have in order to get their degrees, right? So couple of issues to me at least surface that again communities are willing and happy to host the researchers and take care of them right by answering the questions um another issue is that once the research study completes researchers pack up and leave get their degrees and even leave the boston area so what is in it for communities to participate in studies right what's the benefit that they get from academic research or being part of or being asked to participate in in research right and ultimately it's the researchers narrative that you hear most often not the community members who took a risk in sharing some of their collective or personal struggles their frustrations and challenges right so they're making themselves really vulnerable by often answering when the truth is i think communities have every right to say no Academia doesn't deserve my story, my lived experience, because I don't trust academia. In fact, the history of academic knowledge has proven to be one-sided, meaning extractful, right? Take mm -hmm. extracting knowledge from communities and then disappearing, and we don't know what happens to the gems of community, right? The wisdom that people hold. And this makes me think of when you started our conversation, you said, I'm going to pick your brain today. That sort of crawls right under my skin because scientific, academic knowledge has exactly done. Literally picked people's brains, uh, conducted experiments on human lives without telling them or making transparent what they were really, truly after, right? So academic, can, academic research can be extremely harmful, if not dangerous, right? So I take up all these issues... Um, when I train current teachers and school administrators to step into the role of becoming researchers, you have to make transparent all these uh, power inequalities inherent in, in academic research practices and traditions. Do you follow? Does that make sense? Oh, no. I, you have no clue. Mm. I think what you're saying definitely makes sense um, when you see a child or a young man or woman just sitting there in silence there's something going on so for me what you're saying Mac makes absolute sense so for you people like you going in and part of me for saying this just being real and putting their all into it and releasing what they know in their heart to be true mm. and giving it to somebody else and passing it on and that person passing it on and that person passing it on, that's a gift because it's not going to waste. Mm. It's alive. It's alive. So that means somebody else is going to get to share that. I hope so. 
Uh, well, yeah. I think uh, this past year I've seen a lot. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot, and I've seen uh, I've seen a lot of hope, a lot of disappointment, but I've seen a lot, and I've seen this in the past. By the way, I've seen it in the '60s, mm-hmm. and it's alive again. Mm-hmm. And I know people are doing what they need to do because they have to. And and it, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And education, particularly in education for the youth, young uh, the, the young young people need leaders that are strong, loving, can stand firm, compassionate, and that can say, uh, "What are you? Uh, where are you going with this?" And that's what you're doing. And I think it's also our ethical responsibility to create spaces, whether, like me, whether you're in, in academia, right, at the university, but also whether you are a teacher in a public or private school or you create after-school spaces for young people, right, that these spaces, I call them brave spaces, and a lot of people are calling them, we don't need safe spaces, we need brave spaces. This is not my own saying. This is really part of a collective effort right now. Um, where young people um, feel carried and supported to question fearlessly the world, right, the world around them, and to also fall apart and knowing that they're going to be caught, that they may be hurting, but to invite other people in their hurt and then collectively to make sense, to articulate, name the pieces that perhaps challenge them or keep them from being well, right, and wanted and desired in this world. So I think that that to me, like being brave and courageous is what we really need to create in education and beyond. But how beautiful is that? See, let me just give you a little glimpse of some beauty. Mm. Years ago, we used to have what was known as coffee houses, years ago, way back when, at, called White Elephant. And everybody used to go from all walks of life. And every, anybody used to go in there and share whatever. Nobody judged anything. Nobody said a word about whatever. Anybody got up and said and shared. But they were all coming from the same place. Everybody had their own bag and shared deeply. And if anybody was in trouble, everybody was there. Hmm. It's the same thing, but on a different type of level from way back when. I mean, that was years and years ago. I saw that. I I was fortunate enough to find that group of people, like-minded. But that was back then. This is now. This is different. It, those type of people back then, would they fit here today? Not in this society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I think they would get pushed back. They would have to stick very closely together. Mm-hmm. So this is what type, in a way, kind of way that you're talking about because you can pick these kids up and they would have that space. But at the same time, Ms. Joseph, you know, I want to emphasize is that they ultimately know how to take care of each other, to advocate for each other. They don't need me. Mm -hmm. I could be, you know, 
I don't know, falling, tripping, hurting myself, breaking all my bones, and I'm out of commission to run whatever study, whatever class, right, for the next six months, and they will be okay. You understand? Mm-hmm. And the way that sort of these dominant master narratives about young people, and particularly when they are poor, when they're immigrant, when they're black and brown, when they are genderqueer, right, they are pathologized to always needing help from the adult, from the outsider, right? From the teacher who knows better, from the principal who supposedly is so well connected to the community, when they are most often the very people who they can't trust because they represent systems of inequalities or they have bought into those structures of inequalities, right? And no longer see the one-to-one interaction and how immediate collaboration can really save lives. Mm-hmm. So what does, I mean, you said earlier that you see patterns sort of come, like things that you have witnessed, let's say back in the 60s are mm-hmm. coming back now in maybe collective action, right? But this is, there's, I think, many beasts that we're up against, right, mm-hmm. to truly work together. This is the question I ask not just you, but also my students or anywhere where I go, right, where whoever welcomes me, is what are you willing to give up about yourself, about your comfort, your privilege, something about that's near and dear to you, right, that you perhaps have for, taken for granted. But what are you willing to give up for you, about yourself so that somebody else can and will thrive, right? Mm-hmm. I am usually met with silence when I ask that question because it's so easy to take the the cell phone out and video record whatever is happening, right? The racial profiling of another black young kid, right? Um, uh, A fight, a street fight, right? Or a police officer coming into a classroom and pulling out another black girl out of the classroom because she was not willing to open the textbook because it was printed in 1967, completely outdated, and it doesn't speak to her, or because the teacher was talking to her as if she were not human, right? But it's so easy to pull out that cell phone to get mesmerized by the event, by that act of violence, mm-hmm. without taking into consideration that the, we're talking about a human being who's hurting, who's misunderstood, who's been neglected. It's so easy to be just become another bystander, a witness, instead of saying, look, I'm not going to record this. Instead, I'm going to step in and get involved, right? How is that different to, let's say, what you witnessed and were part of in the 60s? Because I'm curious. back in the 60s, there were some that did step in. They got beat up, just as like anybody else. You don't see that much of that, but they did. Today, some of the stuff that took place, people just stood by. I didn't agree with it. And when I've said that, oh, they couldn't do anything. No, I don't agree with that. That's me. Those are my words. And I don't think I need to say any more. You would have gotten beat up. You probably wouldn't got have taken in two as well. Mm. But no, you don't stand by and watch anything. I think we're really in deep, deep trouble, Miss Josephine, because we've learned and we have internalized and hence we have socialized and normalized 
that it's okay to take care of myself first. This whole talk right now about self-care, which is important, but you cannot just end there. Mm-hmm. Care work, right? Because yourself, you're part of a larger care web, part of communities that have raised you, that are to this day taking care of you. And so in a way by doing me, making sure I'm okay, that I do my daily yoga practices, I do my daily walks, I eat now fully whatever healthy organic food, right? Is turning you back towards your people, your community. And even if it's not your people, people, right? So the cell phone filming is sort of an act. It is an extension of that, that I get to record it. I could submit it to help somebody, but at the end, you're protecting yourself, right? So that's why the question of what are you willing to give up about yourself or something that you have that others don't and need in order to thrive, right? You know, I'm going to say this, and I'll probably get a lot of flack. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Hello? Mm -hmm. It does say that. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm going to say. Well, love others the way you want to be loved. That's another way where you hear it constantly, right? Mm. Yep, definitely. Yep. Yeah, there are lots of blind spots that we are getting used to, you know, and we really truly don't see them anymore. Then they're fully blinded. Yeah. Mm. Speak to me about what else do you do there? At UMass Boston? Yep. So, yeah. Teach, as I said, I am also heavily involved in community-centered work, particularly with organizations in the Boston area that work with and speak on behalf of the well-being and thriving of young people. So I've been um, part of a number, a number of um, what should we call them? Um, community-centered study groups that hopefully and have, I know, have led to concrete actions to help people uh, to claim the um, justices uh, that they need and deserve within their public schools. So that often meant that I work with high school students Mm -hmm. as co-researchers. We are, we're collectives of co-researchers. I've been part of different collectives here in the Boston area. One was in Brookline in the past where... um, where young people, and this were this was I call it intergenerational because most research only focuses on high school students or college students or middle school students, but they never mix them and don't also often add staff or the adults in their lives in in the investigation. So I was part of this incredible intergenerational group of co-researchers consisting of middle school students, a few high school students, and some of their teachers and union leaders as well in Brookline. Right, where we just we looked at it, what does it mean to be going to school here in Brookline Public Schools? Right, what does it mean? What does it mean that I'm encountering injustices and other kids are not? Right, and what's the role of adults? So it was really cool for a whole year. Right, we we interviewed other kids, teachers, the adults, parents, you know, with the same set of questions, and we the the stories that we gathered we shared back to the larger Brookline community. We invited teachers, union leaders, parents, young, young people to the room to just really um, 
break down the idea that everybody has the same experiences in Brookline, which, you know, as you know, has a reputation of being really functional and fully, fully successful public schools. You don't really connect um, racism with Brookline. At least you don't hear it. Let's say the media doesn't surface it, right? It's Perhaps it's controlled, but when you talk to the young people, it just all opened up. I was like, what do you mean? Of course, I'm the only black kid in, the, in my class. Can you imagine? I become this national spokesperson for all black people in Brookline, you know? Um, so they really opened up, and so we, we held the mirror back onto Brookline, and they had to sit down, and we had discussion groups, right? And hopefully these stories that we uh, gathered, that we excavated, sort of lives on as part of um, organizing source uh, in Brookline. I've more recently worked with Boston public school kids, immigrant kids, mostly Dominican, Puerto Rican, Central American also kids, and Somali youth, where sort of issues of daily Islamophobia, xenophobia, anti-black racism collided on a daily basis while at school. And many of them were English language learners. And so there's something particularly about the English language learning classroom where kids, right, immigrant kids particularly, experience and have to, or are asked to endure these daily acts of violence in the English language learning classroom. I'm not mean, I don't mean ELA, I mean the ELL, right? English language learning classroom. Um, we've been working for a number of years and we're organizing with that. Let me ask you, in that class, mm. where is the violence coming from? Curriculum. The cur from the teachers? The, yeah, the state-mandated curriculum, right? It's sort of a mainstreamed approach that all English language learners learn a particular way that they have to learn English in order to thrive and survive. But they're asking, the state is asking English language learners to give up or to abandon, I would say, their cultural linguistic backgrounds instead of working with them in order to, to adopt to the U.S., right, to educational system. So it's either, it's one or the other, but never together. And that really um, com commits, an en I mean, enormous, unspeakable acts of violence. S excuse me, let me understand. Uh, sometimes I may be uh, thick, Okay, I, I, I like to be real on my show. Are you telling me they're not allowed to speak their own language? In many, in many schools, not in many public schools in Boston. So I'm talking BPS because that's what we focused on. They're not allowed. Mm -mm. It's English only approach, right? And so slowly Massachusetts, the wheels are a little bit turning and spinning to have a dual language approach. And we have a few successful um, dual language um, instruction schools. There's, for instance, the Margarita Muniz Academy. That's one of them where Spanish speakers learn English. They have an entire curriculum across the disciplines in English and an entire curriculum across all disciplines in Spanish and their, in, in their native, right, in their mother tongues. And they run parallel. So whatever they learn in geography and English, that's the same thing they learn in Spanish, right? So they don't forget about their roots but also about their linguistic abilities, right? And that way they can always remain connected to the communities, to the elders, to their parents, right? So it's not the either or approach, not English or Spanish, can only be one, it's both. And it has shown to be extremely successful that kids can indeed 
learn multiple languages all at once. Right? And the academic um, skills don't suffer. They're fully capable of developing uh, two languages all at once. And to tell the truth, most, most English language learners in the U.S. speak more than two languages to begin with. They come from countries where multiple languages are spoken to begin with. Well, let me explain something. I, I, I say this to multiple people. Mm. All of us, uh, our, our ancestors from this country, all came from someplace else. We just happened to be born here. So, I mean, um, that's one of the things that I, I feel strongly about. And, um, you know, m my people came from Italy, Sicily. And uh, that's a long story. I got a story to tell you about that. And uh, I look at it this way. Um, I have a heart. I, I just want to briefly, uh, for all people everywhere. I don't care where they come from. Um, and you have to have compassion for people and the way they learn, how they live, and who they are. doesn't matter. And that has to come from within. That has to come really from your heart. <laughs> and if you don't have it, then there are everyday places such as schools, right, that need to teach that, right, to be compassionate, right? to be more inclusive, to be loving and generous with our love, right? Um, look, we are who we are in this country, or this country, it is what it is because of us, because of a hard labor from all communities. But I also don't want to sugarcoat it. The genocide of native peoples was central to it, right? The exploitation and subordination of enslaved peoples are fundamental to the economic success and, and this global power of the United States that it is today, right? I mean, there is no mystery to how things happen, but yet we don't get to hear the details that at the heart of every thriving comes also profound struggle. I think this is true of every nationality, of everywhere, everywhere, um, but however, I think to myself, people are people to the core, to the core, no matter where they come from. Mm -hmm. uh, this is me. I'm not talking for anybody else. This is how I view people. I, it's sad for me. This, it saddens me greatly to see certain things. It really does. For me, I wish I could just put my arms around it all and make it go away. But see, I, I'm not God, so I can't do that. You don't have to be God to do this. No, so you know? all I can do is when I'm here and welcome people, show them the love that God put inside of me. And that's all I can do. One person at a time. Sometimes, every once in a while, I meet somebody that does not want that. I don't care who they are and where they come from. Mm. It doesn't matter. But I still show that to them. Mm -hmm. See, I feel like this. Let it begin with me. And see, you are where you are, and you're letting it begin with you, and you're passing it on. And that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And I pray and hope that it continues that way. On my end, I pray and hope that it continues that way. Because it has to take people like you 
and myself, whether it's academics or whether it's a person at a TV station or mm-hmm. whether it's somebody with music or somebody in basketball, somebody, and let it begin with them. Yeah. All these boundaries between us by way of professional affiliation, right? It's all fictitious, really, right? We don't have to give in to those barriers, is what you said. You start maybe with yourself, but it's so easy to just step through doors and invite each other into being part of these conversations. Yes. And I love that about your podcast. That's what right? I do. I, that's, I why I, that's why I saw you. I said, this is a wonderful woman. <laughs> let me draw her in. Let me, let me get her in. I want to know who else do you work with as well, uh, besides the youth? Besides the youth, I mean, definitely um, I belong to beautiful communities and networks of, um, I call them my, my sister goddesses. It's a group of, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, we're a group of, of women who entered our doctoral pro- program in New York City, at the City University of New York, the Graduate Center, together. And we also graduated together. So to this day, the circle of sister goddesses is very much connected, very much alive, and we lean on each other. We really lean on each other in times of real trouble, doubt, self-doubt, or when our little ones are sick, Mm. right? Or now in this particular COVID-19 pandemic, we also lean on each other, figuring out when can we see each other and under what circumstances, under with what practices can we see each other and help each other. So that's one very near and dear space and group of people, you know, to my heart, very near and dear. My students, Miss Josephine, my students are my oxygen. <laughs> and as I said earlier, when I say students, I mean usually what we imagine is young people, because I also work with young people when I say students, but my everyday students are parents, teachers, doulas, social workers, uh superintendents right at the district level administrators they check me that i don't end up in theoretical talk right an abstract talk and then i say yeah patricia nice and sweet but what does that look like in real life like how does that operationalize in my classroom practices or in the principal office right so they they keep my feet firmly on the ground it's good to be ha- have somebody that you can be accountable oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they shake me and come on, you know, come back. Get your feet on the ground, girl. Exactly. <laughs> Sister, yeah. get your feet on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. See, we all need that. We all need that. I, I, I have somebody like that. Yeah. She shows up every once in a while. And uh, she says, oh, like, what? Is, she's out in uh, Tennessee. Mm. She said, you know, Joe, people don't really get you. I said, I know that. Mm. Mm. She said, you're way out there. And I said, who cares? Mm. <laughs> she said, but get your feet back on your ground. And I tell you, Miss Josephine, my family also has been my calming space because it's so easy to just give, give, work, work, nonstop, right? And as you know, organizing work, community organizing work. I mean, you could just pour yourself into it and you fully neglect yourself and your family. So my kids who are right now nine and six years old, mama, what about me? We haven't seen you in a number of days or we just see you at dinner time. What about us? Can we spend some time? 
oh, mama, you look tired. You have not been sleeping enough. Can you please take a nap? Right? Just this, what seems to be a simple ask to slow down and pay attention to my immediate surroundings is just, um, it's a non-negotiable reminder that I need, cannot lose myself and neither am, not, am I not willing to to pay the collateral damage of sacrificing my family life. You know, that's, that's my, my little gang at home that I'm fostering and co-creating with my husband, right? Correct. Um, the work also starts at home, not in other people's lives only. Well, everything begins at home, my dear. I, I'm from way back when, so everything begins at home. And if you can't get it at home, you're not going to get it anyplace else, you know, out there. Nothing's going to work out there. And I'm extremely lucky that my family is so supportive of what I do. If I need to work, let's say, 12 hours nonstop, they give it to me, right? But they also scream when I'm neglecting them. And that's what I love about this. I mean, it's, a f it's just beautiful, beautiful relationships we have at home. And I feel safe, supported, and loved with whatever I end up doing, you know? That's wonderful. Very privileged that way. It's a give and take. Uh, let me ask you a question. I need to ask this. Mm. What instrument do you play? <laughs> you would have to go there, right? Well, currently I'm learning how to play the trumpet. I started on January 8th this year, and I take my weekly online lessons via Zoom um, by this phenomenal trumpet genius, Chanel Jenkins, out of New York. And uh, she's kicking my butt. She <laughs> is. And, and, you know, what is so incredible, and I really wonder about how other instruments, not just the trumpet, um, is being ta taught or the skills are being conveyed from one generation to another or, you know, or shared among friends, is, is that it's not just a skill. It becomes part of your life. It often requires that we change our habits or give up habits to de develop new ones, find ourselves and see ourselves in different ways that we couldn't before we started learning something new, be acquainted with a whole different world or different dimension to our everyday existence. So Ms. Jenkins has me run every day to increase my lung strength and endurance to deep more, uh, to sorry, to breathe more deeply because she made it really clear I wasn't breathing not just properly but not enough to be alive in this world, right? Um, so breathing exercises, weight lifting, small weights, uh, exercises, daily physical movement, heart uh, uh, to increase your heart rate, right? Is all very much part of trumpet practice, not just. Um, Working on the the word that I, I I'm learning with being a trumpet student is embouchure, just how your mouth, your facial muscles connect and align with the instruments, right? And then the strength you, you with the strength you you blow through four feet of metal to create notes and eventually combinations and 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 uh, multiple notes that form music, you know, and make statements. Um, I'm learning a lot about myself, so it's. Incredible. I, I can see that. I can see that. I, <laughs> I was wondering about that because uh, uh, when uh, Shindig told me about it, and I said, I got to find out about this one. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. I have enjoyed our visit together. Yeah. You are a wealth of information. Uh, 
make no mistake, we will meet again. Okay, yes, please. We will meet again, please. either on a podcast or a cup of coffee, but on we... On the street right here. Right? We will meet I again. I thank you for coming. Thank you so and much, I, Josephine. Don't stop coming back. Don't stop coming back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a wonderful guest. Her name is Patricia uh, Kruger Henny. And do, would you wish to give an email for any youths to get in touch with you in, in this community? Absolutely, yes. Um, anybody who would like to reach out to me, hang out with me, play with me, um, it's Patricia, spelled Patricia, dot Kruger, K-R-U-E-G-E-R, at gmail.com. Thank you. Oh, how wonderful, how wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, today is a new day, and the day is pressing on. Uh, listen, I know this is uh, the coronavirus is around. I understand that and I get that. But please check on a neighbor, especially the elderly, the young at heart. Bring a meal, knock on the door, drop a card, call them, say hello. Somebody needs a smiling face out there. Uh, stay safe and you will be hearing from me again. This is Joseph, Josephine Royal. Let me tell, and, uh, tell you something. What comes from the heart touches the heart. And I will see you again. Take care and bye-bye now.